This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Stalemate in Hollywood. No deal in sight yet. To end the strikes by actors and writers, we'll go in-depth and look at the damage to the local economy. A legendary movie director has passed away. We'll take a look back at that career and what it means. Also, has tipping now run completely out of control? You don't mean like tipping over. You mean like no, tipping. No, I mean tipping like uh, servers and delivery people and what have you, and, you know, and, and news anchors. You know what I hate? Uh, well, you know a lot of the stuff I hate. I know many things that you hate. Right, but yeah. one of the things I, I do hate is when you go to places now, forget about like restaurants. Yeah. You go to places and, and you buy, you know, some, you know, 50 cent item and you have to put your card in maybe to the machine to get charged. Yeah. And it asks if you want to tip. Yeah. We call that a nag screen. <laughs> I call that annoying. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that though. We start with the uh, two Hollywood strikes and recent hope replaced by more gloom. Talks about talks between the writers and studios went, well, nowhere. With us is entertainment attorney J. Christopher Hamilton, who's also a professor at Syracuse University. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. So, you know, in, in international diplomacy, they sometimes say that it's a good sign when at least you have talks about having talks. I'm not quite so sure that applies when it comes to these dual strikes in Hollywood, does it? No, I mean, it's, it's it's very interesting and comical at times because both parties knew that they were going into these talks having neither party agreed in advance to any of the conditions either party wanted. So it was like an agreement to talk for the sake of optics, or agreement to talk to talk logistics, but not really to talk about the brass tax issues. Does this put pressure on the studios to maybe want to make a deal with the actors sooner rather than later? Because if this writer's thing goes on and on and on, it's just going to be a lot more damaging to everyone concerned, uh, uh, not least of which are the writers who who uh, many of them don't make a lot of money to begin with. You know, they're, they're barely scraping by as it is. So they're really uh, kind of twisting in the wind at this point. And the studios eventually are going to feel the pain at some point. So did the actors get a deal out of this? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about pain and, and leverage, right? So the question is, who's going to feel the pain sooner and in, in a more acute way? I don't expect that the studios will feel the quote-unquote pain anytime soon, considering the stockpile of content they have and the opportunity to produce abroad. I think the talent community is going to feel it a lot sooner. Um, unfortunately, the interim agreements that the uh, SAG and sag is entered into isn't going to help their case, although they believe it does. I think that really kind of undermined their entire um, uh, attempt to, to work at a work stoppage. I do suspect, as is often the case, that there's a degree of hyperbole being uh, uh, perpetrated on the public by the producers and the writers and the actors, everyone involved. That said, one of the things that all the sides keep sort of saying one way or another is that these strikes are a turning point, uh, an inflection point. There's some other, you know, cute little phrases that people throw around, but they all amount to the same thing, that this is different than previous strikes, that what will emerge is a very different industry. Do you agree? I definitely agree. Um, you know, from a technology standpoint, from an economic standpoint, this is definitely an inflection point. And there's there's a lot at in jeopardy, a lot, a lot of high stakes issues. Um, I also think the fact that, you know, um, 
our economy and uh, the the world we live in has changed substantially uh, after the uh, after the COVID ep epidemic. So I think a lot of issues are um, making this strike even a much more uh, a scary prospect. Can you explain briefly, uh, you mentioned that the interim agreements that sag is doing right now is really going to hurt them in the long run. Can you explain how, how that's going to come back and bite them? Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the simplest terms, you have major Hollywood producers, uh, actors producing premium content during a strike. And, and let me put it another kind of way. People who don't need the money are giving opportunities to create more value and more and more revenue for themselves and their business partners, whereas the, 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 the vast majority of talent most affected by these changes and most in need of getting back to work are the people that don't have the ability to participate in these interim agreements to produce content, right? One last thing I want to make a note, they are calling these independent productions. I mean, look, I, when I hear the word independent, I may be thinking of something in in the range of you know a few hundred thousand, not uh, upwards of ten to twenty million dollar productions. All right, to entertainment attorney Jake Christopher Hamilton, thank you very much for joining us. So you know we have been a couple of times a week since these strikes began. Uh, uh, you know, as you know, Rob, uh, trying to get an idea about the impact on people who are not actors or are not writers, but are in all these different you know different industries that interconnect in one way or another with the strikes. When we come back, we will talk with the owner of a local catering company about how the strikes are impacting his business. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, it's being called tipflation. You're being asked to tip more than ever. Is that right? Right now, though, we continue to examine the heavy economic toll of the dual Hollywood strikes with us is Alex Yusita, who runs Alex in the Kitchen, a catering company based in Chatsworth that has served the film and TV industry for more than 15 years. Alex, thanks for being with us. Hey, how are you? Oh, we're okay. The question is, how are you because of the strikes? How's your business? Well, considered it all, you know, I mean, we do, we hang in there because, um, we open up based in Atlanta and that's where I'm at right now at this point. Um, but if you want to talk about LA, it's really dead, completely dead. I mean, I would say a hundred percent at this point. You know, it seems like we, we talk to these peripheral businesses that are uh, tangentially connected to uh, entertainment in LA. You've got your pop makers, people who build, uh, stages, people that supply lumber, but a lot of times we're talking to a restaurant or caterers or what have you. And it does seem like an awful lot of entertainment people in LA ate an awful lot of food and now they're not eating. So, uh, our, if you, it sounds like you've got some other uh, irons in the fire there, but are you going to be able to survive in your LA location if this goes on for much longer? Well, you know what, I, I will because um, and I, I was prepared. Thank God for that. And uh, but there's a lot of people they aren't because uh, a lot of people, like you said earlier, I mean, they, this is like a like a change reaction. You know, it's like. It affects restaurants, it affects uh, dry cleaners, it affects uh, rental cars, it affects all kinds of stuff, electricians, you know. Uh, some people weren't prepared, and I was uh, kind of heard that from the beginning of the year, and I was kind of prepared for this. Alex, how many people work for you in L.A.? There were about 50 people. 
fifty. And and are yes. they are they still be are they able to continue to work now? And and if not, what are they doing? Well, some of them are working. I got like maybe like ten of them working right now, but the other ones are. I mean, they're struggling. I mean, uh, they're just waiting and see. And eighty uh, percent of them, you know, they want to travel out of state, which Atlanta uh, has provided a lot of lot of work for us. You know. You know, we've heard that uh, some A-list actors have uh, put a lot of money into a fund to help uh, the actors who are out of work. Uh, I, I assume someone is doing that on the writer's side as well. Uh, would you like some of those A-list actors to throw some money your way and, and maybe uh, uh, give some money to your business, uh, uh, hire you for uh, some big catering projects, kind of help tide you over? I would love to see that. And, I mean, you know, it's, uh, that's what I'm hoping for. And I kind of beg everybody to kind of come to an agreement because this is going to hurt not only me. It's hurting a lot of business and also hurting the, hurting the economy of Los Angeles. And I say, I would say all over the United States because, uh, as you can see, we have 700,000 members that we depend on the motion picture industry that we work for, it, you know, and we're not working. Alex, you said that you uh, kind of prepared for this because you were attentive to what was going on before the strikes happened. How exactly did you prepare? I was kind of prepared financially-wise because I knew it was going to be a long strike, you know, even though people were saying that it's not going to happen. But I was kind of ready for it, you know. Um, I was kind of putting some money on the side and, and tried to be as... Uh, very, very careful what every penny that I spend with, you know. How long do you think you'll be able to last without having to lay off some of the people who work for you? Well, I already lay off a lot of people. I mean, for the rest that I have, I would say hopefully I can hold them to to December. Is it going to be difficult to get people back? Because as you know, I mean, sometimes you lay people off and no matter what their commitment or loyalty might be, uh, to you and your business, they may, out of necessity, find other jobs and stick with those jobs. Well, it is very difficult in every aspect and every job that you look for. You know, I mean, now uh, I have seen, you know, on my people, they're struggling in different other type of jobs and they just can't wait to this thing to be over with and they, they can go back to work. All right, uh, Alex Uzita, good luck, uh, runs Alex in the Kitchen. That's a catering company, Bates and Chatsworth. And as time goes by, uh, we'll check in with other businesses and and see how they are faring uh, because of these strikes. Uh, But when we come back, how much trouble is Donald Trump in for his latest tough talk about prosecutors and social media? We're going to try to find out. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. Well, he made one of the scariest horror movies ever. When we continue a little bit later, a tribute to that director. Right now, though, Donald Trump looks to be in a lot more hot water over a social media message after his indictment on charges of election interference. He wrote in all caps, and some took this as a threat. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. Joining us now is former federal prosecutor Nima Romani, who is now president of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, as always. So some took this as a threat. Uh, uh, some Trump supporters have tried to kind of downplay it, saying no, it wasn't really a threat. He's just, you know, talking. Um, but there are others who are questioning uh, Trump's reactions after uh, being told by the judge 
be careful what you say, you can't intimidate witnesses, so on and so forth. And some are not questioning with, as he continues these uh, messages, does Trump want to go to jail because he thinks that will help his case? I don't think it's going to help his case, but he probably thinks that a judge is not going to hold him in civil or criminal contempt. You know, it's not about these protective orders or gag orders. It's about a judge who's actually going to enforce the order. We saw it in the defamation case where where Trump was commenting on evidence that was inadmissible, DNA on the dress, and the judge kept admonishing him, but didn't really do anything about it. So if the judge is going to be all bark, no bite, then we should expect more of this from Trump. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing. Um, and, And in a way, you almost can't blame the public being confused about law enforcement in this country, whether they are or are not supporters uh, of former President Trump, because it's a kind of schizophrenic message, isn't it? On the one hand, we keep hearing that, uh, you see, we have these indictments. It shows that nobody, even a former president, is, is above the law. On the other hand, I have a feeling that if I were indicted and if I went on social media and I said, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, my backside would be sitting parked in a jail cell pretty damn quick. Oh, I agree completely. Um, A lot of folks think that, you know, whether it's Trump or someone like Hunter Biden, they're getting special treatment. And I think a lot of this has to do with public policy. There's always this hesitation. Are we really opening up a political Pandora's box? I think that's why it took even a long time for Trump to get prosecuted. Of course, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg was the first to do so. But, you know, what's going to happen if you know, Trump is thrown into federal prison for not complying with a judicial order. Let's say the Republicans take control of the House. You know, is Joe Biden, Hunter, Hillary Clinton, are they next? Is this setting some sort of bad precedent? But you're absolutely right. If it's just following the law, Donald Trump is being treated differently than other criminal defendants. I mean, his booking and mugshot, and fingerprint and lack thereof is a testament to that. So if Donald Trump were to be detained because he he keeps violating these uh, judges' orders in these cases, are they maybe holding back from doing that and maybe will back down from doing that because of the fear of the political earthquake that would charge a presidential candidate being jailed, uh, even, even though they have very obviously not followed the judge's orders? I think there is that fear. In a case that we saw that was the Alex Jones civil defamation trial. Judges shoot a gag order. You got Alex Jones outside holding press conferences in complete violation of the gag order. Judge didn't jail him, probably worried that, you know, riots and civil unrest would ensue. And that's Alex Jones. I can't even imagine what would happen if uh, marshals cuffed the former president and put him in prison for either civil or criminal contempt order. So I, I've asked this before of others. I'll ask it of you now. Let, let's pretend, Nima, uh, that you are giving a, a, a kind of a lecture to a public school classroom, little kids, you know, uh, old enough to understand, but not, you know, cynical enough to really understand. Uh, <laughs> and you were trying to explain the American system of justice. Would you say to them something along the lines of, in this country, everyone is equal under the law, except for, and then go to the chalkboard and go, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Is, is that the way you would do it or what? Well, I, I would hope kids, uh, in theory, I could tell them that everyone's equal. But the practical reality is it's not. We all know the rich and powerful in this country. Um, 
you know, get favorable treatment. And whether it's fear, whether it's access, whether it's money, whatever the case may be, I can tell you that in this case, I think judges are going to really be very careful with how they deal with the former president because, again, putting him in cuffs may open a political Pandora's box that we really don't want to go through. All right, Dima Romani, uh, now president of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Exorcist. As one of the movies made by William Freakin, who died today at the age of 87. He also won uh, Best Director Oscar for The French Connection. With us now to look back at his career is Tim Gray, awards editor and senior vice president at Variety. Tim, thanks for being with us. Oh, I'm happy to talk with you. How are you? I, I'm I'm fine. I'm reasonably okay. I'm, <laughs> Doing honest. a little better than Mr. Friedkin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well. <laughs> the um, As a director, it's often said of certain directors anyway that they had a lasting impact on Hollywood, that they were a force, you know, that changed uh, films that came after what they did, in this case, two really uh, great films, The Exorcist and The French Connection. Is that true, do you think, of William Friedkin? Oh, definitely. I think definitely. Uh, I I mean, it's funny because French Connection was 1971, I think, and The Exorcist was 1973. So that's 50 years ago uh, in December. But, you know, if you talk to young people today and ask them to ask them about some directors in the 70s, they don't they don't know who they are. They don't recognize their names. Uh, They don't recognize the film titles. But both of those movies made a huge impact. I mean, it it kind of put a put a burden on uh, Friedkin to try to catch up with with such a big impact and and he never did get anything to match those two movies which were back to back for him but but I mean they they certainly opened up Hollywood's eyes about the way films could get made and the way films could get marketed you know it, it was those films were really radical so it goes, you know, The Exorcist, uh, The French Connection. Uh, those two always get mentioned. Are there other movies of Mr. Frankens that are underappreciated that you think should uh, deserve a little bit more uh, popularity? Well, he he did a lot of films that were interesting. He did one called To Live and Die in L.A. I think that was 1985. And it was kind of a neo-noir set in, set in Los Angeles. And it's real interesting. And also, um, after The Exorcist, his next film was called Sorcerer. Um, and Sorcerer opened in 77. It had a bad luck of opening one week after Star Wars. So nobody went to see it. But also, those who did go to see it, they thought it's from the guy who made The Exorcist called Sorcerer. They thought it was about black magic. It wasn't. It's about guys transporting explosives over a rocky road uh, in in the mountains. And it, that sounds real... exciting. <laughs> well, it's. I mean, it's a real interesting film. I mean, it's you know, it? it's it's very suspenseful, right. but it's not it's not what you would call a crowd pleaser. But it's good. It's it's very well made. You you mentioned Tim uh, briefly in passing Star Wars. Is it true that that he turned down? Star Wars, and did he, like, seek psychiatric care afterwards? 
I, I never heard that story. I mean, it's possible, but but Star Wars was, um, I mean, was was really George Lucas's baby. It wasn't like a studio started this up and was shopping around for directors. So I, I'm I'm not too sure about that story. But his other films, I mean, French Connection and The Exorcist, they they did go shopping those to directors. Warner Brothers had the rights to The Exorcist, and they they approached um, Stanley Kubrick uh, and they approached uh, Arthur Penn, you know, who directed. Bonnie mm-hmm. and Clyde. Um, but Freakin was very hot because he, he just won the Oscar the year before for French Connection. And it, it's interesting because both of those movies, Freakin started out doing television documentaries, and they both have this kind of documentary style to them. Um, you know, very, it's like the camera didn't kind of know where to look. It was moving all around. It was interesting. And Popeye Doyle, the, the um, cop in French Connection. Gene Hackman, you know, right? Gene Hackman. But, but, yeah, Gene Hackman is great in that role, but he's not really a very likable character. I mean, he's 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 bigoted. He's he's a hothead. Um, and so I think that kind of woke up uh, uh, the studios. It's like, oh, you know what? You don't have to have a lovable <laughs> hero. Um, you know, he 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 can be very flawed and, and the audience will still go with him. All right. Uh, tell us a little bit, if you can, before we uh, go. Uh, what happened between him and Martin Scorsese? We understand that they were friends. They they wanted to work together, and then they had some kind of falling out. Oh, I I don't know about that. Oh um, wow, we know no. some Hollywood history here. Yeah, my yeah. understanding, and I'm I'm getting the story secondhand, is that uh, they wanted to work together, and that's where Star Wars came into the picture. Uh, they passed on making Star Wars with George Lucas. And uh, that may have had something to do with their falling out, too. And I understand at some point there were fisticuffs involved. I mean, listen, I, you know, I, well, uh, William Freakin certainly had a reputation for being volatile. <laughs> um, Come into also- it. But also with with Star Wars, you know, I mean, George Lucas had had a group of friends, including like Francis Coppola and um, uh, Steven Spielberg, that he showed a, a rough cut of Star Wars without the visual effects. And most everybody else said, oh, no, oh, the, oh. George, you you got to you got to do something with this. This is a mess. And Steven Spielberg was the one person who was supportive of it and said, "No, I think you I think you're onto something here. This this could be interesting." Um, you know, and so, you know, again, but that was Hollywood in the 70s. They would the directors were showing uh movies to each other and talking about it and all that. So I think that's entirely possible that, that, that somehow Scorsese, you know, who was a hot young director at that point and uh and Friedkin uh came in as a like, consultants on on Star Wars. I don't think they were ever offered to direct it, but but maybe to give their feedback or to maybe direct a, a sequel because Lucas didn't didn't want to direct the sequel. Let me ask you Tim, you, you mentioned yeah. uh you know the amount of time 50 years ago roughly uh, when he made uh, French Connection and uh, The Exorcist why do you think it is that in the next 50, half a century goes by and yes he did direct other films as you pointed out but nothing at all that compared to those two films what happens to somebody who's considered a genius director after they do two films and then nothing that approaches that for the rest of their lives, really. 
No, I mean, I, I worked on an HBO documentary um, in 2005 um, called Bafo, and we asked people about, is there a formula for creating Hollywood success? And everybody, I mean, George Clooney, Sidney Pollack, you know, who directed, who got an Oscar for directing uh, Out of Africa and directed Tootsie and stuff like that. And Pollack said, look, I've been involved with huge hits and huge failures. And I still don't know the difference. You know, when I finish a film, I have no idea how people are going to react to it. And and Friedkin just tapped into the zeitgeist with both those films. He just hit a nerve. And if you look at his other films, I mean, they're they're interesting. They're adaptations of plays or you know, film noir or or you know, he was he was doing interesting stuff, but nothing ever grabbed people. So I don't I don't know if it, it was if he lost something or if society had changed or was a combination of the two. But, you know, I mean, if you see the glasses half full, it's like, look, most directors do not have one film that, that people are going to remember mm. for 50 years, much less two. All right, so, Tim. you know, at least he got that. And Tim, thank you so much. Tim Gray, awards editor and senior vice president at Variety. Now, of course, I'm wanting to talk because the number of films that I've made that have been successful yeah. is zero because yeah. I haven't made any. Yeah. So there you go. Not a good batting average. No. But when we come back, what about tipping? Do you think it's too much? Do you think it's inflated? Do you get fed up with it? Do you not want to tip? We'll explore all that. You are listening to KNX in depth with uh, I'm Rob Archer. I, I keep messing that up. You keep because you keep forgetting who yes, you are. I keep forgetting my name. I'm Rob Archer, and that's, that's a, Charles Feldman. This could be a deep problem, you know. We need to wear shirts with our names on. You think so? Yeah. Okay. 10, 15, 20 percent. How much do you tip? I'm going to digress here because I'm still angry about right. this. Uh, so I went to a place not too long ago, won't say where, um, and went to, you know, pay yeah. the, the bill. And the little machine, whatever you call that, where you shove your credit card in, it, it lights up with different possible tips. Starting, ready at this? Starting at 35%. Starting at 35. 35%. Then it went down. It went 35%. 25%, oh. 20%, 15%, 10%, 30%. Who gives a 35% tip? See, they're doing psychological psychological stuff on you by putting 35% first. Yeah. but it, Because most people assume that the first one is going to be the low one, and that's what they're going to hit by just by force yeah, of habit. But would you give anybody a 35% tip? Only if the service was, like, incredible and they washed my car while I was having dinner. <laughs> Maybe then I would consider it. Well, trust me, they didn't do that. <laughs> We uh, are living in an era of what's being called uh, tipflation, and that's what this sounds like. With us is Thomas Farley, an etiquette expert. It's also known as Mr. Manners. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Robert Charles. You're not the only ones feeling uh, annoyed and confused. This yeah. is something going on. Yeah, but did you ever give a 35% tip? Oh. I mean, seriously. Did you? Uh, you know, I'm not shocked to hear that. Uh, but, and I think there probably have been rare instances where someone went above and beyond. I don't know that they washed my car, but maybe, <laughs> maybe they really just did go above and beyond. Uh, and then of course I, I would recognize that service with, with a very generous tip, but by and large, that's, that's really, it's galling to hear that business owners are thinking that they can dupe their customers into tipping more than they really uh, need to. Now, my general rule of thumb for myself, uh, when I uh, get good service and a good meal and nothing untoward happened, I, I'm generally going to tip 20%. Uh, am I a bad guy for doing only 20%? Do they expect more from me? 
Well, no, it really depends on what this service experience that you've just experienced was. So are you having a sit-down uh, dinner and where you've got General, a server yeah, and you've got yeah. a sommelier and you've got a fancy, fancy meal? So it used to be that 15% was considered kind of the baseline for decent service. That was that held true from the 70s through the late 90s. Little by little, that uh, that amount that we tip customarily started to creep up. And nationwide, it's hovering just under 20% for baseline service. So if you feel like you're acting like Daddy Warbucks, seemingly giving a 20% tip and that they're going to be marveling at how generous you were, that's not going to be the case. For that, you really do want to be looking at 25 or 30% for something that was more extraordinary. But 20% is about your baseline. You're not offending anyone, and you're doing what's customary nationwide. So what do you do with, with a restaurant? I'm still angry about this. What do you right. do with— He's not going to stop. No, I'm not. I, I, so another restaurant, right? I'm looking at the menu, and it says on the bottom— that a 20% surcharge was going to be added to help pay for whatever, you know, the employees' health care or whatever else they're paying for. Um, so what do you do with that? Do you still then, on top of the 20% that they're building in to your meal, do you then tip another 15 or 20%, in which case you're tipping like a 40% tip? I encountered that exact scenario in, I'm, I live in New York, very expensive city, obviously. I encountered that same scenario while traveling in Denver recently, where they had that 20% back of house. Uh, they usually call it a staff wellness fee yeah, or a kitchen right. appreciation fee. And then my server came to my table with the point of purchase reader. Uh, and I was actually somewhat surprised to see that there was another prompt for a tip. And I queried him about it. And he said, oh, well, that first 20%, which we include, that goes to the back of house. This 20% is specifically for me and to recognize my service. So at that point, it was really at my discretion how much I was going. But he had done a good job and to leave him without a gratuity. Um, but I would say I would certainly think twice before returning to that particular restaurant. And I think most consumers are really saying, you know, look, if, if business owners think that they need to raise prices, we'd rather that than have all these surprise fees at the end. It's almost like buying an airline ticket. I've heard of that. I've heard people yeah. say that. Just say, you, you just raise the price of the meal. I'm probably not even going to notice. But when you make a big deal out of it on the bill, that's when it starts to bother me. That's exactly it. And then so the business owners, they're they're a little bit between a rock and a hard place. They claim that to raise, say, the price of a hamburger from $15 to $17 when the, the diner down the street is selling theirs for less. It's going to hurt their business. So they're loath to actually raise their menu prices uh, at the same time that inflation is making everything more expensive for all of us, including business owners and restaurants. But there's this secondary issue of the difficulty of attracting good, skilled, dedicated servers. So post-pandemic, so many people left the hospitality industry because they could not work that business owners, restaurants are really having a hard time attracting good workers. And one of the ways they've been able to do that without offending their own bottom line as business owners is to promise these extra gratu gratuities, particularly for those working in the back of house, uh, which obviously builds loyalty and it builds a happy staff. But the customers are not always feeling so happy about all this. All right. Thomas Farley, etiquette expert. Thanks for joining us. You know, I, I, I did have an instance uh, very yeah. recently where I did not tip at all. Oh. And I'll tell you why. Why? Uh, we, a very nice restaurant, and uh, the food was good. Uh -huh. During the course of the evening, yeah. a server 
uh, pushed or knocked over a bottle of beer Ooh. that went all over the jacket of our dinner companion oh. and into her purse and filled her purse. So now it's all beer. And we did not pay. And of course, now the meal was comped. The manager. Yeah, okay, heard, well, that's okay. But uh, but then it was like the question: Should we also tip? Since we got no, no, of course no. Not. Yeah, and you know, and I'm even getting more angry the more <laughs> I think about this. Because you know, forget about forget about restaurants. You know, did you ever go into like a? a I went into a hardware store last week. A yeah. hardware store. Yeah, and they want a tip. And and yeah, and it asked if I wanted to give a tip for mm. what? I smell revolution in the air, Charles. Oh, this gets me going. There we go. All right, that's it for in I want a tip. We're going to end the show before Charles' heads explode. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. <laughs>